right, let's read um, Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17 is what we're going to go through this morning. So we'll read that section to start with, and we'll pray, and we'll jump uh, right into a couple of things here that I, I wanted to, uh, to discuss. So, uh, Matthew 8, verse 1, when he had come down from the mountain, <clears throat> that's Jesus, just, <laughs> when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing. Be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now, Jesus had entered Capernaum. Uh, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. But only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For, for I, also, I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When, when Jesus heard it, he marveled. He said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I haven't found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed... So let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Now, when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever, so he touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she arose and served them. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits with a word. And he healed all who were sick 
so that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Let's pray. Lord, I'm really thankful that you know everything. And I want, I I want for us to be, for me and, and for us together, to be people who learn more and more about what it means to trust you. To, to just lean, lean on you. To recognize our frailty. And to believe you. I confess, Father, I, I don't know why you do the things that you do or or why you don't do the things that I think you should do sometimes but I know that you know way more than us and that everything that exists is for you anyhow so Lord I pray that you would teach me and us to to trust you God I thank you for your love that is steadfast I thank you for your love that is patient, Lord. And it's, Lord, what I want is for us to be people who are growing more and more into walking in that kind of love. In the fellowship of your spirit, united together with you, that you are living through us, Lord. And that it would be to the benefit of our families, our spouses, and our kids, and, and our friends and our extended families, Lord. And that your life in us and through us would be to the benefit of, of, of our city and to the benefit of the poor around us. And then, and, and then however, whatever influence or opportunity you allow us to have, Lord, that it would be uh, to the blessing, to the benefit of that until until you call us home and until the fulfillment of this thing the the wrapping up of, of the work that you're doing and, and then moving into the the next part of your eternal plan Lord I pray that you teach us Lord that um, the things that we see are temporary the unseen is eternal please Lord would you lead us and speak to us this morning I pray in Jesus name Amen. <clears throat> Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Um, so, um, as I was looking at the next section of Matthew here, I uh, and then kind of going over and uh, looking at an overview of the rest of the book of Matthew, what we find is a lot of um, um, a lot of narrative story stories that are wrapped up with this sort of idea. A lot of them are centered around this. Matthew's presenting to us how Jesus fulfills the 
promises of God given to the nation of Israel regarding the Messiah, and he brings it up again and again and again. He says, Jesus did this so that it might be fulfilled, and he did this so that it might be fulfilled. And as he's doing that, we see sometimes multitudes of people, large crowds of people following him, typically, usually the common folk, but that depends on the area, because sometimes we're going to see him go to some areas and just be completely rejected. And he's even going to say at one point that he couldn't do many mighty works in one area because they wouldn't believe him, they wouldn't trust him. And we also will see him uh, challenged and then eventually rejected by the religious leaders of Israel as they say about Jesus that the reason he's able to do all of the demonstrative things he's doing in order to show that he is the Messiah, the things that he points to uh, when John the Baptist is arrested and John's like, wait, are you really the Messiah? (laughs) You know, because he's confused about why he's in prison if the Messiah has come. So Jesus says, listen, Go tell John the stuff that, that you're seeing happening here. The, the poor having the gospel preached to them. The, the sick are being healed. The, the blind are having their eyes opened. All of this. And essentially, he's saying, listen, the promises about the Messiah are being fulfilled. You may not understand what all is happening to you specifically, but, but God is at work here. Right? So... He pointed them to that. So we'll see that sort of stuff, and we'll see the rejection of the religious leaders as they say the reason why he's able to do all of these um, powerful things is not the Spirit of God, but instead the Spirit of demons. They say it's the um, uh, by his master Beelzebub, right, is the, the way that he has the power to do this. They certainly believed in spiritual beings and, and in their authority and their power, right? And this is obviously going to keep moving on to where he begins to speak to the multitudes in parables, and he begins to speak to his disciples in plain language so that they can understand. And he, as he's leading them and discipling them, teaching them to follow him, which is a weird thing to say, teaching them to follow him. He didn't really teach them to follow him so much as he just said, come follow me. <laughs> and so they just did. <laughs> like, they, just, they just hung around him, right? Like that was, it's what it was. Following Jesus was just being with him. So, um, so they, they did that, and, and then, of course, this culminates in him being um, betrayed and arrested and killed, as he said that he would, as he said that it was going to come, that it was going to happen. And this seems like, you know, f- for all outside purposes looking in on it, it feels like the biggest failure of a mission to install a king and bring a new kingdom that you could possibly have. <laughs> but it wasn't. Because his kingdom is different than all of the kingdoms of the world. And that means that we who are a part of this kingdom, we who have the spirit, who have been brought into this kingdom, the kingdom of the heavens, we too have the the privilege of being different than the rest of the world. Um, Now, the first thing that I wanted to look at as we go through this is this... uh, We see Jesus in these first couple of miracles here. We see him uh, essentially... Uh, let's say the simplified form of this is that he is um, dealing with sickness. He's healing sicknesses. Okay. In fact, the first these first three things that are mentioned here, uh, Matthew even kind of summarizes this brief little section here in in verse seventeen by saying this was done so that what Isaiah wrote would be fulfilled. Okay. Now Isaiah lived like six hundred years before Jesus was born, so. Um, this stuff happened so that what Isaiah promised would be fulfilled of the Messiah. Now, we're going to look at each section here specifically, and then we're going to hopefully spend a few minutes um, 
summarizing all of this. Um, well, let's let's begin with verse one. Sorry, I'm I'm processing some stuff in my head here. So um, let's begin in verse one. When he had come down from the mountain, that of course was the mount that he had just spoken to the disciples on, and then multitudes of people he had just given to them what we call the Sermon on the Mount. He just been up there on the mountain teaching them provides naturally great acoustics so that you can speak, you know, from one place. You don't have to have a PA system. They didn't have those back then, <laughs> other than natural ampli- amplification, right, that they would use from auditoriums uh, or the stadiums that they built. Or in this case, he, would, he went up on a mountain so that he could speak to them and, and the multitudes, the crowds could hear. There's another situation where he goes out on a boat and he pushes out a little bit from the shore. And there'd be a natural amplification that would happen on his, with his voice so that it would kind of bounce off of the water and be able to speak to large crowds of people. So as he comes down from the mountain, he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. Remember, this is the, near the beginning of his um, time in public service or in public ministry, as we like to call it. And behold, a leper came. Let's make sure I'm clear in my pronunciation, not a leopard. That's what my children would want to hear every time I said it. Uh, but this is a leper. Uh, now, um, there is a particular type of disease that we call leprosy now, uh, and, and likely various forms of that particular illness or disease. Uh, it's a, like a degenerative disease that causes you to lose uh, feeling in, in parts of your body, and typically, uh, frequently, lepers may, as they lose the feeling in different parts of their body, they accidents would happen. They would smash their nose or, or smash their hand or their fingers off, and so many of them are maimed in all sorts of different ways, but they didn't feel it. They couldn't feel it because of the disease itself, because of leprosy. Now, as we deal with leprosy in the Bible, I want you to remember that it's a more generic term than that. It's, it's not that specific modern thing that we may refer to as leprosy, though that probably is included in this, okay, if and when it existed back then. It's a more generic term, and there are specific descriptions given in the Law of Moses about how the priests were to, to determine who had leprosy and who did not have leprosy, and then how they were then to proceed, because... This was essentially Israeli CDC, okay? This was how they dealt with, with um, communicable diseases. If you had a communicable disease, you were exiled from the community, and leprosy was considered to be one of those types of deals. If you had this issue of leprosy and it was ongoing and the priests determined that this is what you had, you would be essentially excommunicated from the city itself, and you would have to go live separately from everyone else in the community. You would not be allowed into temple worship or tabernacle worship of God. You would not be allowed into quote-unquote, the presence of God in that sense. And you would even probably be exiled from your family and from others as uh, in order for them to protect themselves, right, from catching what you got, okay? That's the idea here. So this leper comes, uh, which is itself a, a kind of a shocking thing, but Jesus is out and he's on this mountain. He comes down and this leper comes. The leper came and worshipped him, saying, I love the descriptions of worship here because, again, you and I, when we hear the word worship, what do we think of? We all sing some songs. Let's worship. Which is fine. You can worship the Lord by singing to him. But singing a song is not necessarily worship. Right? Not necessarily. Worship is an attitude of our hearts. And listen to how they worship the Lord uh, here. How this leper worshiped the Lord. Behold, a leper came and worshiped him saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. I'm really glad that's described as worship. A couple of things. 
you can make me clean, is a statement of confidence in Jesus' ability. I know you're able to do this. Yeah, that's worship. God, I know that you can do this. If you are willing, another part that I love, essentially saying, Lord, it's up to you. This concern, this care of mine, this leprosy that has kept me away from God and away from the community of people. If you want to, you can heal me. You can make me clean. Now, throughout biblical history, as far as the Bible is concerned, there's only been a couple of people ever healed of leprosy. One of them was Moses, and it was just like a temporary leprosy that was uh, given to him uh, in order to demonstrate his authority from God to Pharaoh. If you remember the story, he takes his hand, and he sticks it in his, his, um, his robe, if you would, and then he pulls it out, and it's leprous, and he sticks it back, and, uh, and it's healed. Okay, so Moses is one of them. And the other one is not a Jewish person at all. It's a Syrian named Naaman, who ends up being healed of leprosy. As far as biblical history goes, there is no other recorded place uh, where any Jewish person was actually cleansed or healed of their leprosy until now. Let's continue the story. I'm going to explain to you why that's vital, why that's so incredible and important in just a minute. Um, Then Jesus, uh, I have to read this slowly, then Jesus put out his hand and touched him. Guys, Israeli CDC, the priesthood, says this guy is unclean. And the way that holiness and uncleanness works is that if something that is declared holy touches something that is unclean, the, the holy thing becomes unclean. It doesn't go the other way around. But not so with Jesus. put out his hand and he touched him. CDC has already said, this is a communicable disease. He has to be exiled from the community. He's not allowed to live in our cities. He needs to stay away from his family. He is not allowed to come into the presence of God for worship at the temple. This guy comes to Jesus. This guy who's literally the definition of an outcast from society. (laughs) Society has deemed, has deemed, in case you missed that, <laughs> society has deemed that what this guy has is something that keeps him away from everyone and from everything, and most importantly, from God himself. Because where was God? If you were a Jewish person, where did you meet with God? Where was God? At the temple. <laughs> That's where you go to meet God. That was God's place. The, the writings had said that God would meet with the nation of Israel between the cherubim. That's... Uh, cherubs, right, between the two angels that were, that were formed into the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was that wooden box covered in gold that had the two stone tablets from Moses, a little pot that had manna in it, and Aaron's rod that, that supernaturally budded after it was cut off from uh, the tree trunk. Um, stories that you read about in the Old Testament. That was what was inside the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of that box that was over, covered with gold was a solid gold lid called the Mercy Seat. It's just called that because it was a lid that sat on top of it. 
So the mercy seat sat on top of it, and it was made of solid gold, and it had these two angels with wings spread out toward each other and wings spread out to the side. And God said, I will meet with you there, between the cherubim, between the cherubs, right there, on the mercy seat. That's where you met with God. So if you have this disease, leprosy, no for you. You don't get to come to God. You don't get to be a part of the community. You don't get to be close to God. And Jesus put out his hand and touched him. I, <laughs> I have been in a few situations where I remember thinking when somebody walked up to me, sometimes it was on the street, sometimes in other places, somebody came to me and reached out their hand to shake my hand. I have had a few situations where I have said, I don't want to do this. <laughs> and that's a, maybe a terrible confession on my part. <laughs> but to my knowledge, I did anyways. <laughs> At least best I can remember. Jesus put out his hand and touched him. And all the conventional wisdom would be saying, you don't touch a leper. Because what if you get leprosy? Then you are now exiled from the community, from your family. You don't get to go into the presence of God. Jesus put out his hand and he touched him saying, I am willing. Be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. One of the things I want to mention to you about this story is that one of the problems with taking one little narrative story from the Bible and then trying to make arc generalizations of it is that I've heard teaching like around this particular verse here that says that Jesus is always willing and will always heal anybody who comes to him in faith and will always take away whatever their affliction is, whatever their disease is or whatever. Problem is that simply is untrue. (laughs) And in the end, um, there's something that's going to kill every one of us, (laughs) right? So if he kills, well, right, but right, death, right? But death is the result of something always, right? Nobody, nobody just dies of nothing. We die from, from our body failing if some, some other thing doesn't, doesn't hit us first, right? It's one of the problems with taking a story like this and saying, well, what Jesus says here is always true. So if you go to him and you say, if you're willing, you can make me clean, and you really believe it, then Jesus will always say, I am willing, be cleansed. The problem is we have testimony of somebody like the, the, the great apostle, is what I call him, uh, from Paul, who said, I had this thorn in my flesh, this messenger of Satan to buffet me, and I prayed that God would remove it from me three times. But his response to me was, my grace is enough for you. My grace is sufficient for you. And he did not take away this messenger of Satan that was sent to buffet him, to, if you would, kind of keep him in line. (laughs) What was that? What did that mean? What does that look like? Listen, I don't know any more than you guys know. (laughs) The Bible says what it says. (laughs) But what I do know is that Paul says that he prayed that God take it away, and, and God said, no, essentially, my grace is enough for you. I'll walk with you through this. Jesus himself would pray in Gethsemane, wouldn't he? 
Lord, if there's any other way, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but you will. What you will, Lord, let that be done. It's one of the dangers of clipping our Bibles out of the context of the rest of the story, the rest of the scriptures, okay? Is that sometimes we can narrow things down into this little statement and make statements that simply end up being untrue. And I've heard many people come along the line and say, well, one of the reasons why I don't trust in God or why I don't want to believe Him is because I prayed that He would do this thing and some pastor told me that He was always willing to heal or always willing to do whatever if you believed Him. And I believed Him genuinely and He didn't do it. And so therefore, I'm, I don't want to trust in that God. I don't want to believe Him because I asked Him to do this thing and He didn't do it for me. And of course, the big issue with that is that then the question has to come up, who really is God then? If I'm in a place where I think I'm controlling him, there's a big problem. (laughs) If he's the Lord, he has every right to decide when and what he does. And nobody can tell him otherwise because there's only one God. (laughs) There are no others. There's no competition (laughs) with God. There's just him. And everything else that exists is just something he made. And something that, therefore, under his authority. Jesus' response to this man in this circumstance was, I am willing. Be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Listen, the first time in recorded biblical history of this cleansing of leprosy. Now listen to what Jesus says to him. Jesus now said to him, See that you tell no one. This is going to happen several times as Jesus continues his ministry. The people that he works with and heals, he's going to be like, Don't tell anybody. And typically, their response is going to be to leave and to tell as many people as they can. (laughs) It's this really fabulous thing. This really wonderful thing where, and I say wonderful, it's like, wait a minute, but they're disobeying Jesus, right? But like, their lives are so dramatically transformed by this encounter with with the living God. They just, I I have this sense they just can't help themselves. They've just got to tell somebody, Right? Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now, that might be a verse that you've read before. Maybe. Maybe not. Or maybe you just haven't given it any thought before. But I want you to think about it with me for a minute. And and we're going to camp here for just a minute, okay? I want you to think about this. Jesus' response after he heals this man of leprosy, after his leprosy is cleansed, is to say to him, don't tell a bunch of people, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the priests, which primarily would have been like the Sadducees, who did not believe in miracles, they didn't believe in the supernatural, they didn't believe in angels, they did not believe in, uh, in, the, in the resurrection from the dead. Okay? The Sadducees were a sad group of people, you see. They were sad, you see. Get it? That's how I remember them every time. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, but they were also the ones in charge of the priesthood during the first century. <laughs> they were the ones in charge of, of the fellowship with God. But they didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. <laughs> okay? And, and they didn't believe in angels or spirits at all. Okay? So now Jesus says to them, I want you to go and I want you to show yourself to the priests and offer the thing that Moses commanded you to offer. So he tells him to go and obey the Torah. 
Go back to what Moses said to offer and offer it. Now, if you, would, if you want to, look with me at Leviticus 14. If, not, if you don't want to grab it, then just listen as intently as you can, possibly can, for me. This is, in Leviticus 14, this is the commandment of God for the, in the day when a leper is cleansed of his leprosy. Now, now, I want you to stop right there for just a second. Well, let me read chapter 14, Leviticus 14, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This shall be the law of the leper for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest. That's verses 1 and 2. Now, stop right there for a second. God gave in the Torah, through Moses, a law about what was to be done when a leper was cleansed of leprosy in Israel. But there is not one place in biblical history where a Jewish person is healed of leprosy after this commandment is given. Doesn't it seem like a waste? <laughs> Why would he even say it? Why would he give this law, this command that they wouldn't use for thousands of years? Maybe, maybe... A thousand years or fifteen hundred years. Why would he do this? Because this is one of the things that is demonstrating to the religious leaders of Israel that Jesus is truly their Messiah. Because he's going to do something that they have never seen done before. And officially... In order for a person to be declared leprous, it was the priests that made the declaration. Do you understand that? It was the priests who were to examine the sores or the wounds on a person's body and who were to, over time, as the law describes, as the, the law of Moses describes exactly how they did this, but over time they would determine if this was to be considered leprosy and you were to be exiled because of it. It was the priests who made this decision for them. So now Jesus said, go back to the priests. I've cleansed you of this leprosy, now go back to the priests and offer to them the gift that Moses commanded. Now listen to this ceremony in Leviticus 14. I, I want you to listen as intently as you can. This is the ceremony that was to, that was to happen uh, whenever a person was cleansed of leprosy according to Moses, according to the Torah. Uh, verse 3 of Leviticus 14 says, And the priest shall go outside of the camp, and the priest shall examine him. Why? Well, because he's not allowed to come to the temple. He's not allowed to come into the camp. He's supposed to stay outside of it. So the priest has to actually leave to go examine this guy. The priest should go out of the camp and the priest shall examine him. And indeed, if the leprosy is healed in the leper, then the priest shall command to take for him who is to be cleansed two living and clean birds, cedarwood, scarlet, Hyssop, which is uh, like a plant, like a branch thing. And the priest shall command that one of the birds be killed in an earthen vessel over running water. So in like a clay pot, they would kill one of these birds as water flowed into it, over running water. Okay. As for the living bird, he shall take it, the cedar wood and the scarlet and the hyssop, and dip them and the living bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water. So they have this pot that they killed this one bird over. So naturally what's going to fall into that pot, the blood from the bird, right, is <laughs> going to go into that pot. They're to kill it over the running water. So the blood's going to go into that pot. And now they're to take the living bird and they're to take all the other things and they're to dip them in the blood 
of the first bird uh, that they had killed, dip them and the living bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water, and he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed from the leprosy, and shall pronounce him clean, and shall let the living bird loose in the open field. And he who is to be cleansed, uh, I'll move to verse 8 in just a second. Stop right there and think about that process. They're to take these two birds and these other items, and they're to take one of the birds and kill it over this clay pot, essentially, over this pot with running water flowing on it, okay? And then they're to take the other stuff, the living one, dip it in there, and then they're to take the living bird, after they dip even the living bird, not only the other items, but after they dip the living bird, they're to then sprinkle the um, sprinkle these things, the blood, obviously, seven times on him who is to be cleansed, and shall pronounce him clean, and then they're to let the living bird loose in the open field. Now, um, what strikes me about this is that if I try to think about how I would give a symbol or an idea about what resurrection from the dead looks like, um, but I actually have to kill something (laughs) in order to do it, what strikes me about this is how incredibly picturesque this is of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. This bird is to be killed over an earthen vessel, over a clay pot. It's something that Paul would use uh, to speak of us. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, speaking of our bodies. They're just like clay pots. They're to kill the first bird. And the second bird, though, is going to have the blood from the first bird, and the second bird's going to be let go. It's going to be released. It's this, to me, it's this incredible picture of death and of resurrection from the dead. Now, obviously, um, God wasn't making his people into necromancers, so they didn't actually resurrect the dead bird, right? <laughs> the dead bird didn't come back to life. But it's this incredible illustration. In addition to that, There's no place in recorded biblical history where they would have ever done this ceremony until Jesus comes on the scene and cleanses this man of leprosy and then says, go and and offer the sacrifice that Moses commanded, which means the priests are probably like going to the the scrolls and like, wait, 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 we've never done this before. (laughs) Wait, 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 wait. And they've got to look it up, right? Probably. They've got to go back to the Torah and be like, wait, 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 wait. We remember studying this, we remember learning about it, but nobody's ever done this thing. Nobody's ever done this ceremony. So now we've got to do this thing, Right? But what does that mean for the Sadducees who their theology, Sadducean theology, rejected miracles? They rejected that that miraculous things happened. They rejected the spirit world. They rejected the resurrection from the dead. And now they're offering this ceremony that is itself a picture of resurrection from the dead, of new life. In fact, the last part of the ceremony goes like this. In verse 8 it says this. He who is to be cleansed after the ceremony happens with the two birds and they let the one bird go and they sprinkle the guy, the, the person seven times um, with, with the, the stuff there. Um, this is what happens in verse 8 of Leviticus 14. He who is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes, shave off all his hair, and wash himself in water that he may be clean. Stop right there. This is an incredible illustration of being born again. 
shaving off all of your hair. I've been told many times that when I shave my beard, I look like a little baby. <laughs> and there are, there are many others that are in the same place, right? It's this incredible illustration. All of the hair is shaved off of them. And not only, not only a new birth, but even washed in water, which is baptism. Not only is he to shave all of his hair off after he's been cleansed, but he's to be, quote-unquote, baptized, washed in water. Isn't this, this is just fascinating to me, <laughs> that all of this is in the Torah. It's just fascinating. <laughs> that all of this is in Moses, and they never had to do it before. And then Jesus comes on the scene. And everything changes. Jesus truly changes everything. He'll wash himself in water that he may be clean. Leviticus 14 continues. After that, he shall come into the camp and shall stay outside his tent seven days. But on the seventh day, he shall shave all the hair off his head and his beard and his eyebrows. (laughs) All his hair he shall shave off. He shall wash his clothes and wash his body in water and he shall be clean. If you remember at the last supper, Jesus kneels down to wash the feet of his disciples, and Peter's like, Lord, don't, don't do that to me. You, you can't serve me like that. And Jesus is like, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. So then Peter's like, then wash my whole body. Wash all of me. And Jesus' response is, no, you're, you're already clean. <laughs> Do you understand how much of that is derived from the law of Moses, the things that they're talking about there? And, and we have, m- many times we just have no idea how integrated these ideas are in Jewish life. A lot of times because we just haven't studied the, the law, we haven't really read the scriptures a lot of times. But this incredible picture in Leviticus 14 is this Old Testament illustration of death and resurrection and then a new birth, a new life of somebody who's been cleansed of leprosy. And it was never utilized until Jesus came. And now Jesus sends him right to the priests. <laughs> and he says, go, do, go show them. Go, go show these guys. It's, it's just, just in, this incredible thing, this incredible situation to me. Offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now, verse 5, going back to Matthew 8, says this. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him. Now, this would be a a Roman soldier in charge of a hundred troops. A centurion. Uh, Typically a place of honor in Roman society. It means you had demonstrated uh, some capacity in your military career to serve and to lead for you to then be put in charge of a, um, a group of soldiers. So the centurion um, came to him when he gets back to Capernaum, which is kind of where his headquarters of ministry is right now in the beginning part of his ministry. A centurion came to him pleading with him saying, and, and I just, I can't help but hear the humility in this guy's statements. Lord, My servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Now, I I suffer from a couple of things. Um, 
when it comes to like reading old things. <laughs> One of them is that um, sometimes we can be very ana anachronistic, right? We can read into history things that kind of happened later on and then kind of read them back into it in the time that they really, really weren't applicable to the way that people were or the way that they are. Other times we just base things, a lot of stuff on speculation based on what we think we've heard about a certain group of people. So if I've heard that centurions are usually tough guys and they're all macho dudes and whatever and they've proven themselves in battle and that's why they're centurions and automatically I'm judging this guy to be like a harsh brute kind of guy and then to hear him say demonstrate this kind of care for one of his servants, I can kind of blow it out of proportion sometimes is all I'm saying. Obviously, this guy cared about his servant. And that's valuable no matter what kind of person we think this guy was. Whether or not we think he was a hard, brutish, whatever kind of guy, or whether or not he was generally a compassionate person. We just don't know that. We don't have that information about him. Okay? The text doesn't say anything about that. All that we know is that he's a centurion. But we do see him, when he comes to Jesus, calling him Lord, which is, uh, which is a fairly normal greeting. But typically, it was the way that you'd refer to a master or somebody who had authority over you, somebody who was an authority figure over you. So this centurion, this Roman military leader, comes to Jesus, and he begins his worship, pleading with him, saying, Lord... My servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. I don't know what this guy had. Something that was causing paralysis in his body. And also pain that tormented him. Jesus said to him, to the centurion, I'll come and heal him. That's a pretty good response, right? You go to Jesus, you say, Lord, will you come heal my servant? And the first thing Jesus says is, yeah, I'm going to come and heal him. That's pretty good, right? Now listen to this guy's response. This is what, why Jesus is surprised, <laughs> why he marvels at this centurion's response. Because after Jesus already confirms that he's going to come and heal his servant, Jesus or, or the centurion responds and says this. The centurion answered in verse 8 and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. With this incredible statement of humility, this centurion says to Jesus, even after Jesus has confirmed that he's going to come to this guy's house and heal him, this guy's immediate response is, I am so much nothing. <laughs> I'm not even worthy to have you come into my home, Lord. You see, I, one of the things that strikes me about this is how cavalier we are about this incredible relationship that we have with God. Almost as if we think we deserve it. Sometimes. And this guy in this incredible act of humility is just saying, Lord, I, I know who I am. I know who you are. And, 
and I'm not even worthy to have you come under my, under my roof. But I know this about you, because I am a man in authority. And I say to, to my servants, go here and do this, and they do it. I understand authority. And this tells me a couple of things, it seems, about this centurion. One thing it tells me is that he had full confidence in Jesus' authority over whatever it was that was paralyzing and causing this, his servant torment. Whatever it was, whether or not you or I think it was some sort of demonic power or influence is irrelevant, doesn't say that it was, or whether it was some natural illness or sickness. This man's statement was a declaration of him saying, I know that, that you, Jesus, are in charge of this. And you can just say the word. And it'll be gone. And this is why, for me, this is why earlier when I prayed, when I was praying earlier, one of the things I have to, that I like to remind myself of is, is how incredibly small my knowledge is. To think that I know what should or shouldn't happen in any given situation is just, it's just beyond me. And so when I can approach a situation with humility and pr- approach the Lord with humility and say, God, I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what would be best. I don't understand. But will you please do this? This guy acknowledged not only his confidence in Jesus, but he acknowledged that he believed that Jesus had power over this thing that his servant was suffering from. This tormentedness and this uh, paralysis. So when Jesus heard this guy's statement, uh, verse, 9, verse 10 says, when, he, when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, which is a way of being like, whoa, right? He, mar- he was amazed at this centurion, this Roman guy. He marveled and he said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in my, amongst my people, not even in Israel. <laughs> this kind of faith that's willing to say, Lord, you, everything's in your hands. Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I guess the primary thing right there is obviously they would be outside of the the goodness of God's kingdom, right? (laughs) Cast out into darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And without trying to say, you know, this is exactly what this thing means, what I want to make sure that we hear and that we know is that um, clearly that's not a place you want to be. (laughs) And yet, Jesus said that many people would come from all of these other places and they would have fellowship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They would sit down with them. But the sons of the kingdom, certainly a way of, in this context, the way Jesus is referring to, to the Jews that he's serving right now, to the nation of Israel. Because he said, I haven't even found such great faith in all Israel. They're going to be cast out, he said. They'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know that 
just wailing, crying out in pain. And the gnashing of teeth is so picturesque, right? Where you're in such pain that you just grind your teeth together. You just gnash your teeth. So after hearing the centurion's response, his confidence, his confident trust in Jesus' ability, um, not only to go to his house and heal his servant, but even to command whatever it was that was the problem with his servant, just to command it to be gone, and it would, it would work, it would be gone. After this man makes this kind of uh, declaration of faith, um, Jesus responds, as we read, by saying, whoa, I, I haven't even found this kind of faith in Israel. In fact, a lot of people who, the idea, the context here is that they aren't a part of Israel. They're going to come into the kingdom and they're going to enjoy fellowship with Israel's fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The sons of the kingdom will be left out because they just, they're not trusting me. They're not hearing me. And as we continue through Matthew's gospel, it's one of the primary things we're going to see is, is many Jewish people simply turn away from him. So Jesus then, verse 13, said to the centurion, go your way. And as you've believed, so let it be done for you. Go your way, and as you've believed, so let it be done for you. I mean, it was as simple as that. This is why, like, this is why you, this is why I can pray for anything. I can ask for anything. Because everything is easy to the one in control of it all. Jesus said to the centurion, as we read, Go your way, and as you believe, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour, which was a, that's a figure of speech, saying he was healed right then. It's a colloquialism that we'll hear several times. That same hour. It's the idea of immediacy, right then. <clears throat> his servant was healed that same hour. The last one we're going to look at um, this morning is this. Um, when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. A couple of things to note. Uh, Peter was married. He had a mother-in-law, obviously. <laughs> he, he, he had a wife and a mother-in-law, therefore, and he also had a home. When Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever, so he touched her hand and the fever left her, and she arose and served them. Now just, you look at what we read in the first two situations that we read about, where the leper was cleansed, and then where the um, centurion's servant was, was healed. You read about those, and there's a little bit more description. And this one is just such, it's like the briefest, the slightest little, oh, by the way, when they got back to Peter's house, after this stuff happened, when they got back to Peter's house, um, Peter's mother-in-law was uh, sick with a fever, and so Jesus like touched her, and it was gone. It's just the the briefest little like. It it's, comes across to me as as like matter of fact, like oh yeah yeah he he touched her and the fever left. Like I mean, of course, <laughs> right? It's Jesus. She did something wonderful, by the way, after she was touched by Jesus. She arose and served them. 
I've seen that happen a lot when people have an encounter with the Lord. They just find themselves motivated to just love others and just serve them. Because God's been so good to them, they just, just want to help. I think it's really cool to see. Um, last couple lines here. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and healed all who were sick. Verse 17 sum summarizes what we've just been reading, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Here's why he did it. Saying, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Here's my summary of, um, of this beginning part here. Here's to what I want to say to summarize what we've been talking about. A couple of things come across to me that I want to make sure I'm clear on. One is this. Jesus is able to do anything he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, in whatever way he wants. There's nothing that's hard for him. There's nothing. There's nothing that is hard for God. And these three miracles that seem to be just beyond what could be conceivable, they, they were easy for him. The fever immediately left him. And we're gonna, as we continue to go through the text, we're going to see many more types of things happening. The fever left Peter's mother-in-law, and uh, the centurion's servant was healed of, of um, this paralysis and, and whatever was dreadfully tormenting him, right? Maybe it was just the paralysis itself that dreadfully tormented him. Um, and then the leprosy as well, which became this incredible illustration for the Jewish leaders, for those in the priesthood, to recognize that something different was happening. Do you realize that if you were, if you were a Sadducean priest at this time, your ears would have had to start to perk up? When this leper came to you saying, I'm cleansed, and you examine him, and he is cleansed, and now you've got to offer this sacrifice and nobody else has offered before, it's got to get your attention. And that's what he's doing. He's getting the attention of the nation of Israel. I want you to see the overarching storyline of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is presenting to Israel God's kingdom. God's kingdom, the kingdom of the heavens. In fact, he taught them to pray, let your will be done. <laughs> on earth just as it is in heaven. Let your kingdom come, he taught them to pray, right? <laughs> when he began his ministry, after John the Baptist was arrested, he comes on the scene and he begins to say, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's announcing to Israel God's kingdom, God's reign, God's authority. This is, the, this is their hope. This is what they've been waiting for. This is what the prophets have foretold for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And they haven't even had a prophet on the scene before John the Baptist for a few hundred years. And now all of these things are coming to pass. And Jesus is making it abundantly clear who he is and what he's doing and what his kingdom looks like. And so all of these sicknesses, they're going away. All of these, these burdens, all of these troubles, all of these things, he's removing them, he's taking them away. And Matthew says he's doing this because of what Isaiah said. And this brings us, of course, to Isaiah 53. 
Isaiah 53 says this in verse 1, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, speaking of the Messiah, shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yes, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. This is our Jesus, who carries our sorrows who bore our grief and does. This is our King. Jesus presents to Israel what his kingdom is like. And he's going around doing all these miracles, healing all of these people, doing all of this stuff. And eventually he's going to be rejected and crucified as the prophets foretold, as he himself said. But I, what I don't want you to lose sight of is this, that every person that was healed of sickness, they all died. Lazarus, who was resuscitated, who was brought back from the dead after he'd been dead four days, and he stinketh, <laughs> right, Lazarus, he died again. 
All of them looking forward to something else, looking forward to another place, looking forward to the culmination, the fullness, the fulfillment of God's kingdom. And something that the Apostle John writes about in the book of Revelation, Revelation 21, he says this, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. And then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. That is the great hope of his kingdom. It is more than just the removal of temporary sicknesses. It is the resurrection from the dead and a new life in a place where there is no more sorrow, where there is no more pain and no crying, where all the former things have passed away. And Jesus now is presenting the kingdom to Israel, a kingdom that they rejected. But not all of them. God had a remnant. Some believed. A small group trusted him. And they become what we call the church. Who have the deposit of God's kingdom within us. We share in this great tradition and this great history. As we have received of God's spirit. And we have the deposit of his kingdom now. That we get to live in that authority. Live in his authority. In his power. knowing that he is moving everything into a particular direction, one that he has foreordained, and one that will be culminated with this idea of paradise, of garden. Just as it began in a garden, so too will end in a garden, perfect in the beginning and perfect in the new world. No death, no sorrow, no crying. The former things have passed away. Everything is made new. This is our Christian hope. Not just that God will take away my trouble and my sickness. He may or may not. If he does, we rejoice and praise the Lord for it. And when he doesn't, pray that we suffer well with each other and that we serve each other well, knowing that there's a better resurrection. Knowing that even when somebody is healed or cleansed of something, that they still die. <laughs> the things that we see are temporary. It's the unseen that is eternal. And so my challenge for me and for you is for me to ask you this. You know, what are we spending our time investing in? How are we setting the focus of our hearts and our lives? Is it truly on the kingdom of God or is it on the kingdoms of men or on our own little kingdoms? All of this was done so that it might be fulfilled. <laughs> what was spoken by Isaiah. He has carried 
our sicknesses. By his stripes we are healed. And I don't know when you will you and I will fully enter into that, obviously. <laughs> but the promise is there for us if we'd laid hold if we would lay hold of it by faith. And if we would trust him. Um, you know, not demanding that he do what we want but confident in his ability to do anything and of the fact that because I am a dear child of his that he loves me and I can just ask Lord will you help please Lord and I can trust that he will do what is right and what is good <sighs> let's pray uh, you guys and then we'll um uh, Josh will come and sing a song. And when he sings a song, I want you guys to come up, if you would, and grab uh, some bread and a cup, uh, if you would. And we'll have communion here. We'll take a couple of minutes here to have communion if we'll, uh, you want to come up and, and sing.